Good morning. Before I start, I know what you're all thinking. And no, Pastor Stacy and I did not coordinate. <laughs> but it always happens whenever I wear my gray vest, you're wearing your gray vest too, every single time. So, um, her, uh, thank you so much for uh, the well wishes this past week. Uh, as many of you know, uh, last week, Saturday night, I got sick. It was terrible um, and full of anxiety and panic. Um, but uh, while I was going through that, um, I got to watch the service and see what you guys did. Uh, and I'm just so grateful that in my absence, you guys were able to worship, and uh, it was a really beautiful service. So uh, I am thankful to be better and thankful to be here this morning and excited to um, share with you. And I want to start in sharing a little bit of my story. Um, so I was not one of those that grew up in the church. Um, I actually, I grew up uh, between my, my parents' homes. I started with my mom um, for elementary school and through junior high. I spent time with my mom in Idaho. Um, and while we were there, we went to church maybe a couple times, but it wasn't really enough for me to really get to know what this faith was all about. Not enough to own it myself. Really, it was just it was enough to know who Jesus was, uh, and that was about it. Um, but unfortunately, it was also enough experience to see a side of the church that was probably not very healthy. Uh, I got to see from my mom's experience a side of the church that was judgmental. Um, she would come home talking about the things that people would say, uh, either to her or about her. Um, and there were even times where she'd come home in tears, and I was... You know, as a seventh or eighth grader, I would, I would look at that and I would think, why, why, are, you even, why are you even going then? I, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand why this was a value to her. Uh, but there's, there's a lot more going on during those years, um, enough to where I, I decided to move to live with my dad when I moved into to high school. And so I moved to Illinois uh, my freshman year. And uh, one of the differences between my, my parents and their style of, of parenting is my dad is a little bit more hands-off. Um, in, in not, not a bad way, but in a way that allowed us to really explore and um, discover things on our own a bit, um, which, of course, had a lot of potential to be bad, and there was definitely times I made some poor decisions. Um, but one decision that I was able to make that proved to be really pivotal to my journey for the rest of my life was when a friend of mine from this new high school I was going to, uh, his name was Peter, um, he invited me to attend his youth group. Uh, Peter and his family were uh, longtime members at a covenant church in Galesburg, Illinois. And uh, at the time, the youth group was doing really well. So there was a lot of other kids my age, and so I heard about it. And I'm like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, but I'll be honest, I, I didn't take to it very quickly. Uh, I remember the first uh, time I went, it was really intimidating for me as an introvert. Um, I come in, and they're having this, you know, like, family dinner, and there's maybe two tables for students, and Peter's at one that was full, so I had to sit at the other one. A bunch of kids I didn't know. I was really angsty, freshman, um, that uh, very nervous around other people, very introverted at the time. And um, as I'm sitting there as this non-religious kid with all these strangers in this place I wasn't familiar with, I just couldn't help but think about my little experience that I'd had with the church so far. I couldn't help but think that um, as, as I'm sitting there, this kid that's made some poor decisions, uh, this non-church kid, that they must, they must know about what, what I, who I am, who I was, and what I've done. I mean, I just assume that like, they knew things. Like, 
God probably knew, and he told them, and they just knew. I, I didn't know how it works. I really didn't. I was, but I would, that's how I was thinking in my mind, that they must know all my issues. I felt very exposed being there. Um, and so I, I sat there very quietly. I ate my pizza and just kind of listened and um, felt very nervous the whole time. Uh, and as I'm sitting there, they're you know, making jokes, some inside jokes about things I didn't understand, words that like camp or vacation Bible school, these things that like I had no clue what they meant. Uh, it really felt like they were, they were speaking a, a foreign language. Um, and so I just sat there and I listened and I ate dinner. I didn't really participate in the conversation. And afterwards, they, they invited us all down to the youth room. And I go down there. There's some leaders, maybe some parents, I'm guessing, that were going to lead in some games. And um, I, was, I didn't want to put myself out there that much. So I definitely didn't play the games. I really sat in the corner and kind of watched. And uh, was like the fly, tried to be the fly on the wall. I assumed that meant that they didn't see me. Um, but I, I tried. I just kind of sat in the corner and watched. And then it came time for the Bible story. And they all sit down on these couches, and they all pull out their Bibles, and I panicked. So I'm like, I didn't bring a Bible. They all bring their Bibles out, and I didn't have one. I, I think I had a kid's Bible, maybe at home, maybe in the bottom of a closet somewhere that had pictures and stuff. I, I didn't know I was supposed to bring it, so I felt so out of place. And I messed up already. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know I was supposed to bring it. And at that point, I really was ready to call it quits. So my first time going to youth group, I'm like, I messed this up. Um, they're they're going to know. I didn't even have a Bible to read. But it was at that moment, another student looked over to me, and she invited to come sit next to her. She said, hey, Chuck, you, you can come share with me. And I hesitated because that would be putting myself out there. But then everybody's eyes came and looked at me, and I'm like, it's easier just to go sit down. So I went and I sat down. <laughs> and I, 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 just, I just tried to like pretend like I knew what I was doing. Um, but uh, as I sat down, she even pointed to the Bible, in the, in, the, in the Bible, the passage that we were about to read. I'm assuming that she assumed I didn't know what I was looking at, which I did not. So it was very helpful. Because the Bible is weird. If you, have you thought about what the Bible looks like to somebody who doesn't really look at the Bible? It's like really tiny letters on paper that's so thin you could see like three pages down. And there's you know, numbers like in between sentences, at the beginning of sentences. Some of the letters are black, some are red. There's uh, two columns. Like it's a strange looking book. And there's all sorts of words in there that I've never seen before in my life. And so I'm, I'm very thankful that she, she decided to take a moment to point at the page and to, uh, to, to help me know where to look, where to follow along. She she helped me to, to engage. And so uh, it felt really good. It felt really good. Like I was, okay, I'm in this now. Uh, but that good feeling went away really quick. Because I realized that the way that they were reading the Bible is that they were going around the circle. And each person was reading like two or three sentences. And it was getting close to my turn. And so I started to, to, to breathe really funny. Like everybody could probably hear me breathing loud. And my heart was racing. My hands were getting sweaty. And I'm like, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well. And I don't remember the exact passage that it was. I just know that it was, it was one of those passages where the words uh, were not common to most people. Um, some, some hard words to, to pronounce. And as, it, as my turn begins, I start reading and I hit one of those words. And I just, tr- I just swung and I tried. Uh, I'm pretty sure I got it wrong. I felt really awful afterwards. I, I was like, yep, there's the first one I messed up. But I just kept reading. But before I can get to the next word, um, right as I'm about to say it, 
My new friend Linnea sitting next to me jumps in and pronounces it for me. But she didn't pronounce it the right way. I'm pretty sure she pronounced it wrong on purpose. Because everybody starts giggling. And she just, she just looked over me and she said, don't worry, uh, none of us know how to pronounce these words. <laughs> Do you see what she did? I mean, it was a beautiful moment. It was helpful, but it, it released something. and It allowed me to immediately calm down. It, it humanized me for a moment. I could feel normal. To, uh, Linnea, she, she took down the expectation of having to know what to do or to follow any sort of rules, broke the barriers down, and allowed me to just be with the rest of them. Be one of the rest and not knowing every uh, way to pronounce these words. It was really helpful for me to be able to engage the word. Um, to this day, I have so much respect for my friend Linnea. She's actually um, a fellow pastor in the UP in uh, Michigan. Uh, and I just got to see her at Midwinter a couple weeks ago. She's probably my oldest friend. Um, but I tell you this story about my friend Linnea for a reason, because she helped me to learn an important truth about what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord. So let me step back for a minute and get us caught up. Um, the past several weeks, we've been, uh, Pastor Stacy's been leading us in a series called One Thing, and it's been focusing on a statement from Psalm 27, verse 4, um, which if you, um, if, if you didn't hear the message last week, we have postcards out on the welcome desk um, that you can grab and bring that home to you um, through the series. But the, the passage says this, it says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We begin by fo- focusing on what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord, which is um, where I'm concluding that conversation this morning. We talked about that, um, what we can do to do this uh, personally and spiritually in our lives, um, that to dwell is to abide and to make residence, to to be. It's to delight in and meditate and, um, and, and be challenged by the word, to wrestle with God in the word. And last week, in my absence, uh, it, it provided a perfect opportunity for you all to practice this together as a church, which was really beautiful, um, to make resident scripture in your life. Um, as you guys uh, responded to and listened to um, the spiritual practice of Lectio Divina, which is the divine reading of Acts 15. Um, and to see the different ways that you responded to it, and as many of you came up and shared your reflections, it was really awesome to see. You were, you were dwelling in God's word. You were dwelling in the house of the Lord together. Well, this morning I want to I take our, our final week to talk um, about dwelling in the house of the Lord in a different direction, opening it further outside of ourselves, outside of our congregation, our immediate community. And I want to consider what it means for the outside, the other. Because as, as, as was evident last week, I believe that the way that we are able to dwell in the house of the Lord will look very different for each of us. Especially from generation to generation. The idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord, or or as Jesus often put it, um, uh, dwelling in the kingdom of God. It's not cut and dry. The way that it looks, uh, the the procedure, the outcome, the things that we do, these spiritual practices like Lectio Divina, like the the worship music that we sing, 
The, the, the ways that we engage in the Spirit of God regularly, the, the way that we understand it, it's going to be different in each generation. Too often, the historic church, the historic church has made it difficult for different people to dwell in the house of the Lord, or to live into his kingdom, it, it, at least because of how they've interpreted it for themselves and how it works for themselves. They made it difficult for those outside themselves. Um, last week, I chose the passage that you were, you were dwelling in, um, Acts 15, because uh, this is, it's one of the first times in Scripture where um, we see this really come out. So it was at the Council of Jerusalem. Um, as, uh, as we read it last week, if you were here and you remember it, um, the challenge in the passage came from the Jewish Christians that were questioning what requirements there were for Gentiles, what, what they had to do to participate in um, the, the traditions, the rituals, such as the practice of circumcision. Um, Gentiles being those that were not Jewish or not of um, the, the heritage and didn't know the traditions and rituals, um, these, were, these were all things that the Jewish people had been taught to, to do to live in accordance to, to God's will. And so they asked the question, do, do the Gentiles have to do all this as well? To be included? To be welcome as God's people? And I, I think Peter's answer was pretty fascinating. And I don't remember who it was, um, but one of you, in, in your reflection afterwards, you brought this up. But uh, Peter didn't answer really a yes or a no. Uh, what he did is he actually kind of pulled a mirror out on him. He, he affirmed that the Gentiles were welcome just as they are. And he, and he did this by reminding them of all the things that Jesus had done. Um, and the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles both are in need of the same salvation. In verse 10, he said, Now then, why do you trust, or why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? It's a, not a common language term, but to, uh, a yoke. It was a reference to, obviously, a, an ox or a donkey. They put these things on their necks to help them carry the wagon, carry the weight and the load. And it was common language for a teacher or a rabbi to pass along their theology, their understanding of, uh, of, the, of Scripture and the procedures, the rituals. They would pass it on to their students. And that was the yoke that they would put on their students' shoulders to then carry and move on and to live into this. It was a yoke from um, the law of Moses that they had, had, had given them, Right? It was something that Jewish people throughout the Old, the Old Testament, throughout history, had been doing and passing this along, but they had also consistently messed it up. They'd also consistently not been able to do that, not been able to fully live into what it means. And so Peter is saying, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that we nor your ancestors have been able to bear? And then in verse 11, it says, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter knows the truth that Jesus taught over and over again, that salvation is because of his grace, not because of anything that they could do. This is a foundational Christian truth, right? We know this. We can live and we can dwell in the kingdom of God because of the salvation given to us. And that's it. 
What I find interesting is that Peter's calling out the generations before them as well, reminding them, highlighting the fact that all generations tried. They, they thought that the different ways that they were doing it were right, and they failed, and they were in need of salvation, and they received that salvation. So Peter's calling, uh, calling for them to humanize these Gentiles a bit, to be more gracious with them, the end in verse 19, he said, do not make it difficult for the Gentiles that are turning to God. Now, can you see why this reminds me of my own story? In those early days of trying the church out, as I was doing, I thought that I was messing up because I wasn't following the rules. I didn't even know the rules. I felt like an outsider. And I was worried that I would, I would be condemned for it. And I'm sure that for some of you in your experiences, maybe you've had somebody in your life, a church perhaps even in your life, that has made it difficult or even impossible for you to know how to follow Jesus. That people are making it difficult for you to turn to God. That's what I was afraid of. And I want to humbly argue this morning that maybe not in such a stark and easy to see way, but maybe we're still doing this as a church. Perhaps in the way that we choose to live into our call and, and to dwell in the house of God ourselves, Perhaps in our raising up of rituals or styles of worship without any explanation as to what they mean to the outsider or why these, these practices are valuable. Or even in the ways that we've, we've interpreted scripture. We've interpreted it with rigidity or with, with our own hubris instead of with humility and grace as it was meant to be. Perhaps we've made it difficult for the outsider to find a way in. There's, there's truth in what we do as believers, yes, and there's truth behind why we do it, but it often is a language that we speak and that we're fluent in, and we don't always do a good job of translating it for the other. See, there's a, there's a truth that I came to understand, and it's a truth that stems from that moment with my friend Linnea when she broke down the ritual barriers and allowed me to come to my faith more freely. And the truth is this, that the message of Jesus, the truth of what he has done, it translates to every generation. Just as it is translated in different ways, in different generations, in different cultures for 2,000 plus years, it's translated all that time it continues to translate now. And we need to allow it to. We need to even help it translate. Even if, even if it means letting go of some of the things, the, the things that we have held on to, things that may have helped us dwell in the house of God but, and, and helped us to remain in God's word and truth. Maybe we need to let some of those things go because all are called. All are called to this. All are called to the house. and Even, even the other those that are different from us outside of our circles. And it's selfish to think that our way of remaining in God's truth is the only way. I truly believe this. And I believe we have a responsibility to sit beside the other. Maybe, maybe point at the page to help them follow along, to, to humanize them and break down the barriers like my friend Linnea did for me. 
But I acknowledge this. This isn't easy. And it's not easy because while it's easy for us to maybe look back at other generations or even look at our own and understand them, it's hard to look forward and see the generations that come after us and to really understand where they're coming from. So I want to add a little perspective this morning uh, and and, uh, help us maybe sift through it and see what the gospel truth translates to, how it's understood um, by by other generations that are in our time now. Um, A good friend of mine, his name is Ben Kearns. He's a pastor, uh, was a pastor for 15 or so years, a youth pastor, and he wrote a book. And the book sheds light on what the gospel message looks like to this Gen Z in this uh, post-Christian culture. Uh, And the book's called From the Pen to the Palace. And in in the book, he takes a look at the story we just had read, the story of the prodigal son, a story that you are very familiar with, not only because it was just read, but also because uh, we know this one. Um, And the story from Luke 15 is about a father and his two sons, uh, this first generation of sons. And one of the sons, one of the sons chooses to follow the path of the father. And remain in the Father's goodwill. And many who hear this story uh, may, may come from more, if we're looking generationally, more from like the boomer or the greatest generation. Again, I'm generalizing, but from those generations, generations that grew up in uh, Christian households or with a, a dominant Christian culture around them. This, this son is one that not only knows what it means to dwell in the Father's house, but has accepted this truth for themselves. And, and lives in the Father's house and will receive the full inheritance. This son is to be admired, to be respected. And the challenge for this son comes at the end of the story that we read, and that's to accept and understand the miracle of the grace that the Father offers to the second son. And the second son who was lost, and, and some will resonate with this second son more. The second son was um, tired of living under the Father's rule, wants to break free and to, to live his own life. Uh, many Gen Xers really have resonated with this part of the story, right? Uh, maybe even some of the early millennials resonate with the son who, um, who, who uh, sees an opportunity to go out into the world and to discover what the rest of the world really is for themselves. And so they take their inheritance and they go. And they, they see a, a real world that is harsh and that has great consequences. And they squander all their inheritance and live into sinful life. And they end up at rock bottom, in the pig pen, eating the pig's food. Only to then make a decision to return to their home, to return to the father's house, right? And this is the part that Gen, Gen X loves, this part of the story. It's a re- redemption the part of the story where the father doesn't come down hard on them for their rebellion, but instead welcomes them and embraces them with open arms, right? It's a beautiful story. It's how a rebellious generation wants to feel, right? The, the way we see this story, it's, it's a gospel message of justification, right? It's, it's a, you, were, you were a sinner, you caused a problem, you made a mistake, you broke the law, you, you got a speeding ticket and Jesus paid the fine. Right? Like this, is, this is the gospel message that translates to this generation. You are justified because of your faith. Your relationship with God is restored. You're welcomed back home, forgiven. Right? Perfect story for a rebellious generation that then returns to faith. And that's the key. They're a generation that knew what it was like in the Father's house. 
They wanted to dwell in the house again because they knew what it was like. And after seeing what life in the pig pen looked like, they longed to return. But my buddy Ben, in his book, he, he, he said something I really agree with, and that is that the story doesn't seem to really have the same zing to the next generations that have come after that, to youth over the past couple decades. For some reason, it doesn't seem to resonate as well with them. And so in the book, he tries to look at the story in a different way, and he asks a question. He asks, what if, what if the lost son never returned? Because the reality for Gen X is there is quite a few that never returned to their faith. What if the lost son fell in love with the pig farmer's daughter and, and made a home there at Rock Bottom? Which, by the way, to any pig farmers that are here, I apologize. <laughs> Generalization. <laughs> it's an analogy. What if the son didn't return? What if the son decided to make a family there? And, and what about those children? Those children would be more like those that are most of the millennials, maybe some Gen X, but most millennials, who, who were raised outside of the father's house. And this is where I resonated in my story. Those that had maybe glimpses or insights into what it means to live into the father's house, but they never really saw it for themselves. Maybe the only perspective they had were from these jaded parents that never returned, right? For them, if they were to return as a child of the lost son, the gospel truth for them would be more of a gospel of redemption. The, our generation, we get that there was a time, that there was a palace. We, we may, have, may not have experienced, but we, we know enough and we've heard enough. There's maybe an echo of it, that we get it. This uh, redemption gospel loves the idea that Jesus will come back and will make all things right again. It's a, it's a gospel message of healing in a broken world, that the world is not, it's not just a bunch of individual sins, it's a broken mess. It's not just about the rebellion, the individual things that happen, it's something deep-seated that needs to be redeemed and restored, and they love the gospel message that talk about restoration, how often Jesus talks about restoration. We, we, we've grown up in this reality of this broken world and this kingdom, and we want to see justice and restoration throughout. So we go back to the Father's house wanting that justice for all. We want to see an end to uh, p- the, the poor and the afflicted, the, the hurt and the pain. We want to see it all be restored back to what it's like in the Father's palace. But you see, there's another layer down from that, and that's where I believe Gen Z is at currently. It's a generation living in a post-Christian world. It's maybe the the grandchild or maybe even the great-grandchild of the lost son. This generation knows nothing but the harsh realities in the world. To them, the father's palace is a pipe dream. It's a fantasy. It's not a reality. For for them, they've, they've learned that the only way to live into reality is to accept it all, the good, the bad, everything, and just to be true to yourself along the way. This generation didn't rebel. How dare you say they rebelled? They're little butterflies. They've made all the decisions they did, and it made them exactly who they are. They're not broken. It's all just a part of their identity. It's just the way things are. The world is chaos, and they're trying to survive it. And the only way to survive it is to live in it, to accept it, and to own it. This is their reality. To claim the pig pen home as their own, as the only real world. They may have heard of this palace, maybe know people 
like us that claim to live there, but it's not reality for them. It's fake. And I say to any of you Gen Zers that are here, I don't think this means you. Because, simply because of the fact that you're here this morning. The fact that you, you, most of you have been raised in the church, have been raised to know uh, what faith is. So I don't think this is you, but I do think that you probably know plenty of people in your schools that you, you know this resonates with. But this, is the, this is their truth. So here's the reality for us and what it, what it means for us as, as a church. And it's what I said earlier, and that is that what, what it looks like to dwell in the house of the Lord for us is going to be very different for others. And if we are to live into what it means to be the church, to be people that reach out into all of the world and become instruments of, of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth, we... If we are to be a people that don't just try to put on this generation a yoke that we couldn't bear ourselves. If we are to not make it difficult for this generation to turn to Jesus, we need to be a people that are different. People that are so gracious and so understanding and so humble. We need to be a people that can be invitational, inviting the other to come and sit by us in a place that they've never been before, a place that's completely foreign to them. We need, we need to be able to remove barriers of rituals by pointing to the page and helping them follow along, highlighting the fact that we don't know everything, mispronouncing the words. We need to remember that while our rituals, our songs, our our practices, and whatever else that we do as a church, it might help us to dwell in God's house. But these things also cannot be barriers to keep others from discovering God's call for them. So that they can live in the house of the Lord as well in the ways that translates to them into the same truths that we do, but in a different language. Let us be a people that see the Gentile that see the other, the one who knows nothing about this life and what it looks like in the Father's palace. May we see them as the adopted heirs or the distant cousins and invite them in. May we see those that don't know the house rules. They don't know that we take off our shoes before we come into the house or that we wash our hands before dinner or that we don't have to steal food from the cabinets because it was bought for everybody to share. Right? This, is, this is stuff that if you've ever adopted somebody or if you are adopted, like you know the realities of what this means, that, that bringing in somebody into your home from outside of your house and outside of your rules and, and having to teach them and guide them and teach them why these rules exist and maybe even letting some of them go so that you can all live in harmony as a new family affecting one another, right? Letting go of the things that may be dear so that the outsider can find it to be a home, that's what we need to do as a church, to help the other dwell in the house of the Lord. It's hard work. It's very hard work. But may we be a people that allow the other, our distant cousins, these Gentiles, adopted sons and daughters, to come to the same Father that desires nothing else but to love his children and his grandchildren. Help them dwell in the house, Lord, because he wants them there. He has not forgotten them. He has not forsaken them. He wants them back. May we be agents to help that be possible so the other can find this can be a home 
place they can dwell with God together. Will you join me in prayer? God, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy, for the different ways that you have reached us through your word, different ways that we've understood stories or moments of your truth in scripture, God, that have brought us closer to you. But we understand that you are still reaching so many that don't know you. And and while it's so easy for us to be caught up in the things that make us feel good in our faith and that make us feel comfortable, God, we know that some of these things may be keeping others from truly finding you. Help us to know what these things are. Help us to know when it's the time, when it's the right time to let some things go. Help us to know when it's time to maybe teach why we do things that we do so that those that come in, those that are welcomed in, can understand, can feel at home. In this way, may we be your hands and your feet. May we help your kingdom be furthered because we can help it translate to the other that you love so dearly. Help us to do this well. Our Father, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.